think it might be more useful to think about this not in terms of right or left, but to think about eugenics in terms of an elitist project. Eugenics is part and parcel of a bureaucratizing, modernizing state. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. The topic of this conversation is eugenics, and specifically the history of eugenics during the first half of the 20th century is what we're going to focus on. Uh, This particular conversation is being recorded in conjunction with our series, Deporting Ottoman Americans. Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to learn more about that series. My guest is Sarah Milov. Sarah, welcome to the program. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. Sarah Milov is indeed one of my colleagues at the University of Virginia. She's an assistant professor in the Department of History and the author of a book that is so close to coming out, uh, The Cigarette, A Political History. That's going to be Harvard next year. Isn't that right? God willing. Harvard University Press. So look forward to The Political History of the Cigarette, which I'm very excited to read, actually. But today we're going to talk about uh, a subject that is more related to your teaching at UVA. Sarah, eugenics. You teach uh, a course on eugenics currently. Turns out Virginia is an excellent place to study eugenics and a great place to teach eugenics um, as the state had the dubious distinction of being the second uh, most prolific sterilizer, second only to California, a history that most of my students do not know when they come to UVA, um, but are startled and glad to learn when they're here. Well, it's a history that I certainly didn't know when I came to UVA from all the other various places I was before UVA. And of course, I had a big shock as my welcome last year, a few days after arriving, the August 11th and 12th events, the violence we saw, the very outward expressions of hate and, and, and racism right on the UVA campus was, a, was a, a, a crash course for me, certainly, when I came here. It was for all of us. <laughs> So what got you into teaching this course on eugenics? Well, I teach surveys in 20th century U.S. history. And whenever I came to the portion where I discussed eugenics, most famously the Buck versus Bell case, which came down in 1927 and is most famously known for Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes' brutally short opinion and brutally pithy statement, three generations of imbeciles is enough. And when we read this case in class, my students are shocked to learn that Carrie Buck, the woman in the case who was eventually sterilized, was a resident of Charlottesville. And that many of the buildings named on campus are named for eugenicists who are the architects of the sterilization law um, under which she was robbed of her uh, right to reproduce. So it has a very local history that students are always surprised by, and that really made me think more deeply about how I could just craft an entire course around eugenics in the state of Virginia. Right. It, it's it's something with the local history here, but it was also sort of a very global phenomenon in the moment we're talking about. Is sort of the zeitgeist in a lot of ways. Eugenics actually united a lot of different um, maybe disparate political ideologies in some cases. So maybe we should get into that. So when we talk about eugenics... I mean, what is our definition? There's there's mm-hmm. a more narrow definition, which is very scientifically based, mm-hmm. but then there's a broader definition, I mm-hmm. think. Um, how, how do you define eugenics? I mean, if you want to go by the um, 
the etymology of the term, the word eugenics was invented by Francis Galton in the 1880s, you meaning good, genics meaning origin or breeding. And basically, the eugenics movement, as it came to be known over the first few decades of the 20th century, referred to attempts to improve society through the selective encouragement of reproduction. So for me, the defining feature of the eugenics movement is focusing on reproduction and family planning um, as kind of the seed of society. Now, it's useful when we think about eugenics in a to develop a rough rubric of what we mean by this, because you can imagine eugenics referring to family planning activities, um, the expansion of birth control, allowing people, allowing women in particular, a greater say um, over their reproductive futures. And we might think about that as positive eugenics, which is to say allowing people a greater sense of choice or positive eugenics in the sense that you would, that there was encouragement for the so-called best types of people to reproduce. Now, positive eugenics should be distinguished from negative eugenics, which always had an element of compulsion. That is to say, laws were passed and bureaucracies were built to forcibly prevent people from reproducing. And the people who were prevented from reproducing fell into the categories, so to speak, of unfit in various forms. This could mean disabled, physically disabled, blind, epileptic. This could mean morally impaired, which is um, a term of art of the time, a moral defect, which might refer to somebody who had alcoholism in their family, whose family was merely poor, women who defied sexual norms. Um, but perhaps the largest category of people that might have been considered unfit we're simply poor. And of course, as we'll discuss in a little bit, and you, you just said it there, that most people who were prevented from reproducing or that, were, that eugenicists sought to re prevent from reproducing were simply poor. And so race and class and gender intersect with sort of how uh, the eugenicist um, project is defining the desire, those who are desirable to um, reproduce and proliferate. Absolutely. The, the way traits were affixed to humans in the early 20th century had everything to do with a particular vision of healthy Anglo-Saxon whiteness that defined the greatest, the most fit people as being um, from native-born nuclear families that participated in civic life and in order to do that had to have um, a modicum of income and education. In some parts of the country, sterilizations were most likely to be performed um, on people considered non-white. So for example, in California, Mexican Americans, Chicanos, and um, across the United States, Native American women in particular uh, were sterilized at rates greater than uh, their percentage of the population. In other parts of the country, in Virginia in particular, poor whites, namely poor white women, were the most frequent targets of sterilization as they were seen to represent a threat to the Anglo-Saxon race, that they were bringing down the standard um, essentially of whiteness in the state of Virginia. And so the time period we're talking about, to be clear, is really before the Second World War, right? I'd say that if you had to give a date to 
the heyday of eugenics. And of course, dates are arbitrary. You can, the first compulsory sterilization act was passed in Indiana in 1907. So there's a longer history to this. But if you had to give a date that joins together this notion of native born whiteness, genetic fitness and trying to promote marriages between eugenic families and prevent marriages between dysgenic ones, you would say 1924. That's the date uh, that the National Origins Immigration Quota Act was passed in the U.S. Congress. That was the, the, the year in which Virginia's Racial Integrity Act was passed, which prevented the mar- which prohibited the marriage between white people and non-white people. And that was also the year in which you, uh, Virginia's Eugenic Sterilization Act was passed, which then became a piece of model legislation passed across the country in the 1920s and 1930s after it was upheld by the Supreme Court decision of Buck v. Bell in 1927. And so we're talking about the interwar period and this 1920s and 30s for our listeners. Well, well attested as a period of nativism and bigotry as well as we've talked about in some other episodes and also a period in which the modern state as we know it is sort of crystallizing, not just in the U.S., but everywhere throughout the world, sort of the, the, the technocratic state, the scientific state. This is, this is the ascendant period in particular. And so one of the questions I always have when reading about eugenics is, you know, eugenics sounds very sinister, but a lot of things involved in eugenics are very banal from the perspective of sort of modern state governmentality, biopolitics. Where do we draw the line between modern statecraft and population policy and eugenics? Is there a line? That's a really terrific question. And I just want to affirm um, your observation that eugenics is part and parcel of a bureaucratizing, modernizing state. In the state of Virginia, in order to be sterilized, one had to be ensnared by some aspect of the developing welfare state, Um, whether that came through a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, an official with the growing uh, Department of Vital Statistics and Public Health. So it had everything to do with the expansion of a public health and indeed a surveillance bureaucracy, which is also coincident with the development of the public health bureaucracy in the United States writ large. So many people who were eugenicists also would have been supporters of public health campaigns, for example, to eradicate hookworm, um, to eradicate pellagra, diseases of poverty. And there's a kind of intellectual tension between those two things, which is to say, in a way, eugenics is fundamentally opposed to environmental ideas about improving public health, because the eugenic idea is that you really can't do anything to the person except prevent them from reproducing to improve society. Mm -hmm. And the public health idea is you can improve environment, you can improve someone's economic conditions in order to yield a better society. Um, But the fact that these two ideas were so easily reconciled by avowed eugenicists shows that there is no hard and fast line um, between Uh, at least the expansion of the public health bureaucracy and the expansion of the eugenic bureaucracy. I think one of the things that is difficult to wrap one's head around when studying this period in U.S. history uh, is just how much the political spectrum was sort of in flux, I guess, from right to left, uh, the way that Republicans and Democrats were sort of um, changing places. Um, This was around the time when the party system was realigning in the U.S. and sort of taking... By, by the end of the 30s, sort of its modern 
uh, form. Uh, and so, you know, when we look at the policies associated with eugenics, we see really people from all over the political spectrum. Uh, could you talk more about that, sort of who some of the biggest proponents of uh, eugenics in the U.S. were and some of the political programs they were affiliated with? I think it might be more useful to think about this not in terms of right or left, but to think about eugenics in terms of an elitist project. So elitists, Republicans and Democrats, I think it's fair to say opposed the franchise, opposed the full extension of um, the rights of citizenship to people who were considered unfit. And it didn't really matter a Republican or a Democrat's view on tax policy um, or what percentage of dollars should go to fund higher education if they could agree upon this one um, aspect of U.S. policy, which in fact touched many aspects of U.S. policy, which is why there was kind of a bipartisan consensus around immigration restriction. It's why um, in Republican California, And Democratic Virginia, you had um, similar programs of compulsory sterilization. So I think it's more useful to think about this in terms of an era of elitism and an era of um, basically restricted democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, Some surprising bedfellows in, um, in the eugenics world might be, for example, um, the head of the Eugenics Record Office, which was um, basically the National Clearinghouse for Eugenic Laws and Ideas and Propaganda in Cold Spring Harbor, funded initially by the Carnegie Foundation, you know, espoused quite obviously negative eugenic policies. The, the leader spoke very uh, forcefully and multiple times in favor of the 1924 Immigration Act. And on the other side of the political spectrum, um, you have somebody like W.E.B. Du Bois, while who he never um, outright advocated for compulsory sterilization, spoke in rather similar terms about, um, in contrast to his idea of the talented 10th, spoke about a submerged 10th, um, a kind of underclass that should not be encouraged to reproduce more of their kind. And Du Bois, for all of his... Um, uh, sociological genius and and you know penetrating insights about the racism of an of America was after all an elitist and thought that the best of his race um, should be leading examples uh, for citizenship. Right, the malleability of eugenics as a discourse, what you can emphasize in terms of bringing out the desirable population, it creates this field of debate where there are people who disagree with each other, but they're all basically eugenicists, right? Until the late 1930s, it was a, a, a consensual discourse. It did not matter if you were a Republican or a Democrat. You probably believed that certain scientific laws could be applied to human populations to encourage a better society. Now, that is not to say everybody supported compulsory sterilization, but many people who even did not support compulsory sterilization may have agreed with say aspects or the discourse of positive eugenics, the idea that the better people should be the ones who are having more children. Maybe I could just ask you to elaborate a little more on how this, since our podcast is largely uh, concerned with immigration and deportation, how uh, these ideas influence the approach to immigration in the U S we've already 
mentioned in many episodes of our podcast, the 1924 quota, which was it was explicitly racially biased. It was about keeping people who are less white out of the United States. Um, although, of course, not exactly legislated in those terms um, explicitly. Um, but what are some of the other ways in which the eugenics movement was part of this? Well, as I've noted, um, avowed eugenicists, um, Charles Davenport um, of the Eugenics Record Office um, testified in Congress about the need uh, for the 1924 Act. And congressmen um, spoke in explicitly eugenic terms in praise of the act, um, supporting the idea that the act would halt the migration of those with, quote, a lower grade of intelligence and those who were excessively feeble-minded and insane. That is to say, people coming from um, Southern and Eastern Europe who were supposed to have a lower grade of intelligence than those from Northern Europe. I think the Immigration Act also highlights a more, a less remarked upon aspect of eugenics, but one that actually might be illuminating for our present political moment as we speak about this in wake of the Pittsburgh shooting, which was there's a religious component. There's a sectarianism to the eugenics movement, which is to say the point of the 1924 Act was to prohibit Catholics with all the associations of having uh, many children and Jews with the associations of, at that time, a criminality in particular and kind of uh, bodily degeneration from infecting the United States. And so it's not surprising that the notion of whiteness that eugenicists all over the country sought to protect was that of essentially Anglo-Saxon Protestantism. And of course, during the 1930s, with sort of the rise of history's most frightening eugenicist project, which is the, the Nazi movement, I think, in, in Germany, at least for that period, you see this shift in American public opinion, especially after the Second World War, not just towards um, eugenics as sort of as a discourse, but also towards immigration and America's ability to uh, welcome people who are different. Um, that became a real debate after the Second World War. So, I mean, I, I have two questions. I'll pose them both and we can keep the rest of our, our conversation about that. Uh, the first one is, who were the opponents of eugenics when it was in its heyday in the U.S.? Who were those who spoke out against it? Now, here we are sitting in 2018. It's easy for us to criticize. But what were the groups that sought to that, that saw eugenics as a danger from its, its very inception? And the second question related to the, to the broader shift is what aspects of eugenics actually survived and thrived well after um, the name itself and everything it was associated with, Nazism, fascism, etc., fell by the wayside after the Second World War. So in terms of who the dissenters to the eugenics paradigm was, uh, one group stands above all, um, and that was Catholics in America, who opposed um, state-sanctioned sterilization on basically both religious grounds in that it violated um, natural and God-given law and, and human rights, but also in a way on sectarian grounds too, because state the state-sanctioned part was nearly as important for Catholics as the sterilization part. That is, Catholics in the 1920s were also politically mobilized um, in support of immigration. Um, 
against prohibition, which is also a part of this discourse of um, social hygiene, um, and also at the same time against the federalization of public education. Hmm. So overall, by the 1930s, 33 states had passed um, compulsory sterilization laws. And in the states, the, the roughly one third of states where those laws failed, you see Catholic clergy and laity um, above all as um, the primary opponents to the passage of those laws. Uh, Sharon Leon has written a terrific book about Catholic opposition uh, to eugenics where she highlights the role of um, of Catholics in Ohio in particular at fighting off um, a, a compulsory sterilization law there. Well, that's a very interesting history given where uh, American Catholics, and here I'm talking about voters, people like my own family, for example, where they situate themselves sort of on the reproductive politics in the United States today. Well, here's where it's tricky. And here's where your initial question about, you know, where exactly do historians draw the line with eugenics? So Catholics opposed state coerced or state sanctioned sterilization. But the very same Catholics that opposed that also affirmed certain aspects of the eugenics program, which was a kind of pro-natalism and um, conservative, rigid gender roles that they very much shared in common with the assumptions of many eugenicists, that people should be bountiful. Only eugenicists thought only the right kinds of people should be bountiful. Women's natural role is to be maternal and, um, you know, fecund, which Catholics believed and eugenicists believed. Well, and I think it's it, I think it's very telling that the baby boom generation was raised by people who are all steeped in this environment of um, intense eugenicist thought, even though they were born sort of after the uh, discourse lo lost a lot of its cachet. So, yeah, how is this still with us today? Or what were the what was the longer legacy of this period of the rising eugenics movement in the U.S.? This is a really complicated question. Now, as you rightly note, avowed eugenics, that is the kind of I'm a eugenicist eugenics of the 1920s and 1930s, had become discredited in the, the mainstream popular discourse. It had been discredited in scientific discourse earlier, but in mainstream political discourse, well discredited um, by the time the Nazi um, horrors are revealed. As a, as a side note, there's a terrific book uh, written by James Whitman called Hitler's American Model, which is basically um, an exploration of all the ways in which Nazi laws were influenced by state-level U.S. eugenics laws. So it's not just, there's kind of a um, an integral connection between what was happening in Nazi Germany and what had happened the decades prior um, in the United States. But eugenic ideas did not simply disappear. At the beginning of the Cold War and really through the 1960s and into the 1970s, a lot of the concern with reproduction and population control migrates out of the United States, as does America as a superpower. And that becomes kind of transmuted into the language of overpopulation um, through the prism of modernization theory and considering ways in which the third world, so to speak, should or should not develop and under the auspices of American and international development programs, um, coercive population control through sterilization are implemented in the developing world. 
But there's also a domestic after story uh, to eugenics in the United States, which is to say, even though in most states, the heyday of sterilization was in the 1930s, some in some states, Virginia included, North Carolina included, sterilizations by no means go away and continue deep into the 1970s. Now, the nature of those uh, sterilizations changes. In North Carolina, to take one example, they become increasingly targeted at African-American women, whereas the target before um, the Second World War had largely been upon white women. And even this is only a partial story. So in total, about 65,000 Americans are sterilized under state-level compulsory sterilization laws between the early part of the 20th century and the 1970s. But a case brought in the 1970s, the case of Ralph V. Weinberger, revealed a much, much more extensive scope of sterilization in the United States, not through state-level compulsory sterilization laws, but through the operation of federally funded family planning clinics in the United States. So in this case, two young women, two young African-American women, aged 12 and 14, were brought by their mother to a family planning clinic in Montgomery. And the mother believed that she was signing for her daughters to have a birth control shot, a long-acting birth control shot. In reality, she signed, quote unquote, she gave her consent, quote unquote, to the sterilization of her two daughters, which occasioned a court case ultimately ruled in 1973 that demonstrated that at federally funded family planning clinics, between 100 and 150,000 women or, or, or people were sterilized each year, not all of which were voluntary, some of which were done because the doctor said that these poor women would lose uh, welfare benefits should they not choose to engage in a sterilization procedure. So the history of sterilization by no means ends with the Second World War and actually plays out and continues to play out about debates about who is eligible to receive benefits from the welfare state and what is the meaning of um essentially today still fit citizenship. And I think that speaks to a larger point you made about the rise of eugenics and sort of an undemocratic moment in the U.S. I mean, we talked about biopolitics. And as much as any of the ideas in question about like what it is to make a better population, to make a better citizen, it's also about people having rights over their bodies or about states and institutions claiming rights over marginalized bodies, so to speak, uh, in our society. And I think I think that that's an, an equally important point to make about eugenics. Of course, birth control plays a role in eugenics, but there's a world of difference between someone choosing to use birth control technologies versus being having that foisted on them by the state. Absolutely, which is why historians routinely come back to the idea of negative eugenics as kind of the defining difference between eugenics and other public health measures. And while you and I can quibble as... Um, 
you know, well-read people of the left about the meaning of consent for people who were sterilized um, under conditions of either outright coercion or um, pressure applied from uh, various bodies or people with power. The idea of consent is ultimately meaningful when deciding um, whether or not one can have children. Well, I do have one final question sort of outside of the historiographical discussion we've been having. Just uh, more on the, on the personal uh, level for you. As we said, your book that's coming out is uh, a history of the cigarette. Eugenics seems very different, although I clearly see the connection, right? These are both sort of, there's an aspect of like scientific discourses being manipulated to uh, pursue what we see as a sinister political agenda. Uh, but I'm wondering how the study of eugenics uh, you know, for the class you're teaching is sort of changing the way both you think about history, but think about, you know, the world you live in. Teaching eugenics in the state of Virginia today and at UVA today. Um, history of eugenics. History of eugenics, yes. Not the practice of eugenics. Um, has been incredibly intense and overwhelmingly gratifying because I think right now, um, in the wake of what happened at the university um, on August 11th and 12th of 2017, there's been um, a public reckoning that will not be finished for a long time. And indeed, that's the sign of health of the institution, the extent to which it can have a debate about its own history. And that's very much going to involve um, rethinking the university's role in promulgating eugenics in the state of Virginia. Um, in the 20th century. And Virginia was, of course, a leading state in the national eugenics movement. It was the state um, that other states based their laws upon. So I think that there's this moment is is pregnant for rethinking eugenics um, as a historical question, as a question of public memory, but then truthfully as a question of what does it mean to debate racial difference today? I feel like I haven't read the newspaper in the past couple of weeks without hearing about some cockamamie belief by the alt-right about, you know, racial science, racial difference, what 23andMe shows them about their true racial heritage. And so not only is this um, a moment for reckoning, it's a moment in which historians must reckon because there's people in in our midst and indeed in our classrooms that may hold beliefs, maybe that came to them implicitly, maybe that came to them through their family, maybe that came to them because they did a 23andMe test and that affirmed their notion of racial fixity. It's not always um, so sinister, but it, it forces historians to have to think about um, the, the public life of the history that we teach knowing that these students will be going on to to shape policy and to to be citizens um you know in America today well it certainly raises a larger question of how instructors in the humanities are faced with the sudden shift in sort of the ecology of how information is consumed and disseminated and sort of the the ecosystem that our students are living in on 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 their phones and on the computer um and the different discourses um that we constantly have to contend with uh in the classroom just broadly history is sort of 
one of those things that helps give people perspective on uh, sort of these kinds of debates. Yeah, what is so useful about eugenics is that its practitioners and proponents in the teens, 20s, and 30s were so clear about what they wanted. They said it in such outright terms about who, what kinds of people were fit, what kinds of people were feeble-minded, what kinds of people... Um, would be a drain on society, uh, what kinds of people should be um, kept out of the United States. And it's not hard to make the case that when you hear politicians or propagandists today speaking in language that is, if not verbatim, uh, you know, just with a modern echo, that these ideas are genealogically connected. It's not a historian's leap. It's not a humanist deeply interpreting something um, that when there's a proposal to not let in immigrants who will be a quote drain on society, that they're echoing a discourse from the 1920s that prevented millions of people from immigrating to the United States and contributed to the Holocaust. Well, I think that's a strong and unequivocal point to end on for our conversation. Sarah, my love, thank you for talking with me. Thank you. I, I won't say it's been a pleasure, but I have enjoyed this conversation. Yes, it was a very uh, informative conversation, one that fits well with some of the other conversations we've been having on Ottoman History Podcast about this theme of what we could call respectable hate uh, in the history of the U.S. Uh, discourses that espouse uh, racism uh, and white supremacy and cultural superiority, uh, denigration of the other, and yet which were extremely mainstream uh, in the history of this country. I want to remind our listeners that uh, to learn more about the publications of Sarah Milov or other publications on today's topic, we've got a rich bibliography on our website prepared for us by Professor Sarah Milov as part of her class on eugenics. Um, That's also a space where you can leave your comments and questions and find our many other interviews. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Ottoman History Podcast and join us next time.